This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about the women behind the music and what we all can learn from them for our day-to-day lives. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we are taking calls. Who are the women musicians who have inspired you, the singers, the songwriters? We'd love to know who they are and why they matter so much to you. So give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. My guest today is one of those inspiring women for me. She's an award-winning broadcast journalist, author, musician, music critic, and photographer, Meredith Oaks. She combines her deep understanding of music, culture, and communication to help all of us enjoy what we listen to that much more. A longtime contributor to NPR, her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and Salon.com. Get this, she was the first female editor at Guitar World magazine and host of a daily talk show here on SiriusXM for more than a dozen years. She's also one of our favorite guests and amazing at music trivia. So give us a call. Say hi to Meredith. See what she's got to say at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. They did the boogie real slow with the blue lights way down low. Okay, so Meredith has been working on this Women Behind the Songs project. And Meredith, I'm thrilled to welcome you to Women at Work today. I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us, what was it that what was that, that we just listened to? That was Louis Jordan, Blue Light Boogie, and it was written by a woman named Jessie Mae Robinson, who I had not heard of, but I was doing research for my book, Rock and Roll Woman. And when I got to the chapter on Wanda Jackson... Um, I was doing some research on the song Let's Have a Party. I know Wanda Jackson. I've opened shows for her. I've had very lengthy conversations with her on and off the air. Um, I've DJed her shows. I mean, I actually someone I really know, and this I know that song. This is just adding to your cool factor, by the way. <laughs> just a little background. Um, and I know I've played that song in bands, but I never knew who wrote it. And when I looked it up, it said J.M. Robinson. Like, who the hell is J.M. Robinson? So I did some research, and Jesse Mae Robinson it turned out was very hard to find. Um, but I did, I really dug deep and I finally found someone who I thought was related to her, who lived in Australia, messaged her on Twitter. Uh, it turned out it was like her great niece. And she said, I can put you in touch with Jesse May's daughter, who's 82. Uh, so I interviewed her and came up with this incredible life of this woman who wrote songs for decades and had huge hits. And I wanted to honor her and I didn't want her to disappear. I wanted people to not only know the songs and the singers. We know the singers. We know the bands, but we don't always know the songwriters. And as a songwriter myself, I appreciate it. But I also feel like uh, these people have made a contribution and I didn't want them to disappear. And so that's what prompted this whole series of the women behind the songs. Correct. So who else are you covering? And then we'll come back to Jesse May. Uh, it's Cynthia Weil, who was best friends with Carol King, um, who is a character in the play Beautiful. If you've seen Beautiful, that you know That was the she first is. time that I realized who she was. Yeah, that's it. No, that's, again, Carol King, she released Tapestry. She, James Taylor pushed her to the front of the stage and she occupied her space there. So people know who she is. But fewer people know Cynthia Weil, even though she's written as many songs, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Holly Knight, who is... A name not a lot of people know, but her her songs, her lyrics, her music have been on about half a billion records sold. 500 million records. I mean, 45s, downloads, all kinds That's of... That's amazing. Isn't it, though? It's staggering that she has has sold that much music um, for other songwriters. Uh, I mean, other singers. And then um, we wrapped it up with Esther Dean, who's young. Maybe you know her from the Pitch Perfect movies, but she's also a songwriter and... She does uh, what only a few people do in the country. She's a top line writer. So she goes into a studio and she sings over uh, instrumental tracks until she comes up with hooks and lyrics. And so but she's a little bit well known, but again, not enough. So 
And, and so there's a, a lot that's interesting about these women, and we're going to explore a lot of it. But one of the first things that pops out for me is that each of these women as individuals are part of actually big businesses around writing and producing songs. Yes. And that, um, like Cynthia Wilde, for example, was part of the Brill Building, which was a huge machine for putting out pop music. Right, which, but which again... People say Brill Building, like it's in Brill Building sound, but just to clarify, across the street and up the block on Broadway was another building uh, and a studio, I mean, a um, publishing company called Aldon, and the Don is Don Kirshner. So all these these hipster writers, they worked for Aldon. Okay. So they technically were not in the Brill Building, which is still there in New York. You can go see it. It's beautiful. It's where Colony Records used to be and where I used to buy records when I was a little kid with my dad. Um, so... Because I know there are music nerds out there going, they weren't in the Brill Building, they no, were out on. And I appreciate <laughs> it. So they work for this other publisher. So, yeah. But they were still part of, of that scene, of an that industry sound. and a creative community. Yes, very much so. So, with each of these different women that you've di- you're diving into them, and it's also part of your ongoing work in understanding musicians, not to mention the research you did on women musicians for the book. Yeah, which was 50, I profiled 50 women, uh, rock and roll women is the book. It's, it's the parenthetical titles of 50 fiercest female rockers. So we tried to define what fierce means <laughs> and, in, you know, 2019. And so that's, yeah. So I have one of the things that really struck me with both those women that were profiled in the book. And if any of you are curious, A, the book's fantastic. And also Meredith, this, she's been on the show before. She's one of our favorite guests. And we got to talk a lot about the book, the women in it, and things that we can learn from them, was that these women, and particularly the four that you featured, in their careers, they occupied different spaces in the musical arena, that they were singers, they were writers, some were producers. There was a way that they moved through and around the music industry in a way that most people don't realize. Was that by necessity, by luck? Was it purposeful? Uh, all of those things. And especially the earlier you go, the more difficult it was. If you look at Jessie Mae Robinson, African-American woman who wrote by herself. And that, what year was she writing in? She Let's place it in history. She was writing in, she started in the 40s and she crossed over to pop in the early 50s. And by the well, she died in the mid 60s. So she had a short career, but she wrote lots of songs. But one thing that jumped out at me when I saw the credits for Let's Have a Party is that she wrote alone, which is very unusual, especially at the time. I mean, now, if you look at songwriting credits, there's 12 people on it. Everybody wants their piece of the publishing. Um, And even back then, uh, publishers, record producers, everybody wanted their name on the song so they would get some of the publishing. But she wrote alone. And so uh, for her, I mean, she she navigated this world that was misogynist, that was sometimes racist, and she did an incredible thing uh, all quietly. She just like the rest, like women, we, we go about our day, we go about our jobs, <laughs> we do our thing, we don't expect a pat on the back. Uh, and she just did this because the music was in her head and she loved it and she could do it. Were you able to uncover how she started working professionally as a songwriter? Yes. I, I was so honored to have this information and to be able to speak with her daughter uh, and get all this story because there's really not much about her at all online. Um, nothing, really. She was, uh, when she was little, I think she was about three, her family moved from Houston to Watts. Uh, which was outside Los Angeles, which at the time wasn't even part of Los Angeles. It was like a lot of farms, um, and it became part of L.A. But she grew up in Watts, and at the time, there was this very supportive community around her. Um, There was a a black-owned newspaper that she wrote for as a teenager. Uh, She got her actor's equity card, and she performed in theater. Um, She had high school friends, who uh, one of whom went on to manage Ray Charles and one had a studio. I think that was the same guy, but she had like a few high school friends who said, hey, you're really good at this. You should do this. So it was this, it was just not just her. She was incredibly talented, um, but she had this community around her and how important that is for people who are young and have a dream. Um, It's so easy for it to disappear. But with her, she happened to be in the right place. And it was, you know, pre-war Watts was an incredible uh, creative place. Because I have a feeling this is going to be a recurring theme, but I want to break this down a little bit. So it sounds like part of it was that she was innately talented and also creative, driven to make stuff and engage in different ways with 
creative performance, but that she also had a community where she could develop that with other people, which also meant she had a network. She built a network. Um, Joe Adams was the guy who owned a studio who said, why don't you come to my studio? And they were high school friends and said, uh, he said, come down, write. Uh, she started writing songs. She started recording with him. Um, and eventually she sold some songs and then eventually Patty Page recorded one of her songs. And so but it was it was her friends who encouraged her and gave her the facility to actually do this. But she was undaunted. She couldn't drive, which in L.A. even a back big then. Deal. Kind of unusual. She would take the bus from Watts to Hollywood. She would have songs sung into a tape recorder. She didn't even have a piano at the time. She would write on coffee cups. She would scribble lyrics on everything. And she would cobble everything together, go to Hollywood, have her song transcribed, then take the bus to a studio. And studio musicians would have the sheet music that you know had been transcribed from her scraps of notes. Um, and and it worked. And she she started to have hits. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, nothing would have stopped her. But a lot clearly. Of, yeah. But, but that's part of it is right. that there was both that creative energy coming out of her and the drive to get it out there. Yes. Even if it's buses and trains and walking. Right. But the other part of it that's potent is that this friend of hers who had a recording studio, um, what that did, it sounds like it gave her an opportunity not just to translate her ideas into recorded sound that could be shared with other people, but it became a springboard for her, for her to work on with other people on songs to be performed by others. So it was whether she was songwriter or performer, it ignited both. Exactly. That's uh, And as a musician, I know this, you go into a studio and this is where you learn everything. You learn how to collaborate. You learn about the business. You learn maybe even how to sell a song. You meet people and you network. And so that's that's part of it. Putting, you know, being in a, a professional environment, which is very different than being in your house with GarageBand. Not that that's bad. That's great. Um, but back then that didn't exist. So, you know, for her, it was a, a way to enter the industry in this very comfortable way. So what about Cynthia Wilde? Because her background was a little different. Yeah, she's she's amazing. And she's still working. And she and Barry Mann, who is her writing partner, they're still married. They've been six decades and counting. And almost every one of us probably know almost all the words to almost all the songs. They, They've been part of like the American pop backdrop. Right. Well, that's the really interesting thing about the Brill Building era is that these writers who were teenagers, Carol King was 15, Cynthia Wilde maybe was... She's 15? 15, 16. I mean, you imagine being... 14, I think, when she first like stormed into Eldon and, and said to Don Kirshner, I'm a songwriter. I mean, Chutzpah, right? you gotta love it. Girl from Brooklyn. Um, Cynthia Wall was an Upper West Sider. She grew up in Manhattan. She had to take the subway to, to write with Carol King. She freaked out a little. She said, I don't want to go to Brooklyn. It's too scary. But she did. Um, <laughs> but so these writers, they connected Tin Pan Alley and the Great American Songbook with rock and roll. So these were a transitional. Uh, it was a transitional period for music, and these folks were in the perfect place at the perfect age. Um, a lot of them had social conscience because they were New York. They were uh, some of them were a little bit lefty, and they wrote about things uh, that moved them. Um, all kinds of things that kind of presaged civil rights and feminism and all the movements that came later. But they, they were transitional. So, was it these women or the industry? That transcend, transcended normal gender boundaries. I'm going to say the women because I don't think that the it was easy for them, for any of them. Um, I really they had to push their way in. They had to um, uh, they had to carve out a place for themselves that didn't exist before. And that's very hard. And I, I think the world of them, because how bold do you have to be to uh, to envision a place where you don't exist and then to envision your place in it? And that's what they did. Oh, my God, Meredith, that's the most beautiful notion. For those of you who are just tuning in, um, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest this hour is the amazing Meredith Oaks, musician, singer, world traveler, author. We're talking about her series for NPR called The Women Behind the Music and all the things that we can learn from what Meredith's learned from her research. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So whether you want to play music trivia with Meredith or just join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So one of the things that is part of that chutzpah, 
going back to Carol King and Cynthia Weil and Jesse May and these young girls, the really girls at this point, getting out there on the bus is a certain amount of confidence. Were you able to find out where that confidence came from and how it was sustained in what had to have been a really challenging environment? I think uh, part of it came from having talent. And they just knew that they had it. When you you know things about yourself, you know that you can run a nine minute mile. You know uh, that you're an amazing accountant. Like there are things you know about yourself. And they, I love that you place that in real world things, like not the six minute mile. <laughs> <laughs> I was like the slowest per second slowest in my high school of two thousand people. So um, mine was like a half hour. But I think I might have gone to get a slice of pizza and then come back to the track. There was good pizza. I can't blame you. Right. I mean, so but I think so. Part of it was just self knowledge, and I'm not really sure. Where that comes from. I think some of it comes from your parents, but a lot of it doesn't. You know, parents don't intend to screw up kids, and yet somehow <laughs> it happens, and you have to find the wherewithal within yourself to figure out who you are. Um, but these folks, all of them did have community, starting with Jessie Mae Robinson in Watts, California. Um, she had people who told her, you can do this, and that's also very important. Mm-hmm. It's important to at least encounter someone along the way who fosters that belief in yourself. Uh, so you know it's not it's not fanciful or crazy. You know that there is actually something there. You, as you speak about this, it's, you're giving this this wonderful, almost poetic insight. And it's true. And I, um, and I hope that especially the women listening out there, everybody listening, realizes that to hear that voice inside of you and to trust it and believe in it, there's still a, a journey to go on between taking that talent that you see inside of you, developing it, making it real, and bringing it to the rest of the world. But that flash that I know I'm good at this and I know I can do this, you have some of that in you too because you're really good at what you do, Meredith, in a lot of different ways. When did it emerge for you and what was the thing? Any day now. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the humility. But, you know, seriously, if nothing else, like there's the musician in you, there's the photographer in you, but the writer and the communicator in you, when you knew that you could translate ideas for other people to understand them, when did that emerge? And what did it take for you to take that seriously? Well, part of it, I was writing. I was a magazine journalist before. I, I always did radio and writing together. So both were always part of my work life. And at a certain point, uh, a reporter named Guy Raz, uh, who now has one of the most popular podcasts in the world, uh, he was working for NPR. And someone tasked him with going to find new voices. And so I got like a voicemail message from Guy Raz. And I'm, oh, my God, why is he calling? And so he didn't even know I had a radio background. He liked my writing. And he said, well, we'd like you to come to NPR and do some music journalism. And so not at that moment, but eventually uh, when I started writing and learning how, how the process worked and learning how writing for radio is different than writing for writing books, different for writing for magazines. Um, and, you know, the more I got into, into that and then you hear yourself back and you, I, it's hard to hear yourself. I Isn't mean, it? <laughs> right. Even if you do this for your life, nobody likes to listen to themselves. Um, but learn, learning how to be, um, objective and listen and then trying to figure out where it could be better. And so with a couple years, two or three years, and I thought, okay, this is something I can do. So as you realized this was something you could do, you started doing it. You've now written how many books? Uh, three, and one of them has been reissued. So it looks like four, but it's really technically Okay, it's three. a rock and roll woman. Yes. It's the Bruce Springsteen book, which yes. is titled what? Uh, it's now, it was called Vault. Now it's called, I think, an illustrated biography. Okay. And Aretha. Yes. So as you undertake, because and these are not jobs you were given. These are things you're choosing to go and do. How do you start the process of figuring out what stories you want to tell and how you're going to tackle them? That's a really good question. I think reading a lot, and this is another way that you know you're onto something. Because the more you consume, the more you read, the, the more you understand what the currency is. And I think sometimes in jobs you find yourself in something and you don't really have anything to measure yourself by. <laughs> right. um, so you have to feed your head to learn where you are in this this long uh, metric or whatever. And so, yeah, reading a lot, listening to a lot, engaging in culture, uh, watching a lot. Like, it sounds ridiculous, but uh, an old boss of mine said show prep is 24-7. And that's kind of true mm-hmm. with all of these 
these uh, these jobs and probably a lot of jobs. You're always thinking, you're always learning, and whatever you're taking in is going to help you figure out where your your place is. To put it in the geekiest world possible, as academic researchers, you start with what's called a literature review, and you see everything that's out there that's been written and studied about a given topic, so that you can see. Wait a second, is the question I'm trying to ask has it already been asked? Has right. it been answered? How'd they answer it? How good was the answer? So that you can figure out how you can carve a new path and contribute to the knowledge that's out there. And to really go and do it, because I think a lot of people get um, discouraged very quickly. They're like, ah, that's been done, or this, everything's been done. Well, yeah, everything's been done, but not by you. So you figure out what you can bring to it. So how much of it, though, is just that excitement and obsession, that, you, that there are things you want to think about a lot and spend a lot of time with, and you want to make it real? Uh... Probably a lot. I mean, when you're when you grow up loving music, and I I bought my first record at Colony Records in the Brill Building, which, which is no longer there, and it, it was a forty five, and uh, you just you obsess about music. And even when I was a kid, I was listening to the radio, writing down the names and of the bands and the songs and the albums. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to know this. And so I was making a playlist without even realizing what I was doing. And uh, so, yeah, so it's lifelong obsession, I guess. But figuring out how to turn it into a career, that's another story. Because one of the things I find so resonant about your background and work and the way that you approach it and the women that you've written about is this kind of similarity in um, – you're not just doing radio. You're not just doing journalism. You're not just in a band. It's all part of a whole. They're all parts of you and how you think about music, how you understand it, and how you share it. Given that you were learning about women who in many ways were doing something similar, what were the things you started to learn from them that changed the way that you saw yourself? Oh, my God, so much. There's so many lessons in, in Rock and Roll Woman. There's leadership lessons, how women, um, how they led bands, how they uh, how they challenged the record industry, which was really, I mean, Me Too has taken hold in Hollywood. The music industry, it's just starting. I mean, think of what year it is. And it's barely, <laughs> right. it's more like this scattershot thing, you know, someone here, someone there. Whereas in Hollywood, everybody sort of went down in one one punch. Um so a lot about uh, challenging the system, um, figuring out what it is that you have to say and saying it and finding a way to say it and a place to say it. Um, gosh, I mean, so many, so many things. Believing in yourself, it sounds really obtuse, but... No, but that goes back to what we were talking about before, is knowing that you have the spark and that you want to share it. Yeah. So I know you went, you went to college you majored in communications no i didn't political science i am i am so sorry i was going i was wrong i was going to be political science history and international relations i took the foreign service exam i wanted to serve my country my dad was in the military i grew up in a very patri- patriotic family and i wanted to serve and so i thought well i can i'm not going to join the army like my dad but i can be a foreign service officer so i took the exam and while i was waiting to get the results back i got a job on the howard stern show and that's what happened. <laughs> so I did not go off to some foreign place and you know, become so a glad. junior diplomat. I ended up in radio. <laughs> okay. So this is another example of you, like a lot of these other women, wound up in an environment where you would learn and you would grow and that would take you in your professional direction. I kind of did the same thing. As you look back at these women and you think about who had formal training and who was learning on the spot, where do you see the stronger factors in shaping the way that they wound up becoming forces behind the music? That's an ongoing thing. Um, because I was just reading this Annenberg study, and uh, it, I think of all the pop songs on the Billboard charts, only 2% of them were produced by women. 2%. 2%. And for women of color, it's like 0.5%. So it's it's pretty dire um, because the producers make the money. The songwriters <laughs> are making millions. The producers could conceivably make billions. They're building the empires. And so you have to wonder why there are not more women in uh, in producing. So uh, it's that's that's part of it. And I, I just I think there's a lot to be done. So that is like a it's an ongoing concern. 
to answer that question. I mean, I can go backwards from there if you want. <laughs> but that's where we are now in 2019. You know, So it's it makes me- the women that you've interviewed even that much more remarkable because they represented such a small percentage of the professional practice. Exactly. Although when you, you look at the, the 60s, 70s, even through today, you see a lot of female pop stars, especially today. The pop charts have tons of very bold, strong women on you know, Rihanna and Beyonce and Lady Gaga. These are, are wildly creative, talented uh, women. Um, but then when you peel away, and this was another thing I wanted to do about, I wanted to do the women behind the songs just to understand, like, where the power is and where the money is and, right. you know, what, what happens behind the scenes. And so with those women, they are forces of nature and they have the power, but there's still a lot of talent that's out there where they don't have the same kind of power. Right. And to uh, or even the facility, you know, if your kid is taking piano lessons, um, maybe send them to learn how to run a studio board, even a little one. Uh, You know, tell them you could be an engineer. You could you could be it doesn't mean you can't be a pop star. You can. But there's a lot more to this business uh, than just singing. Uh, Fanny, who are in Rock and Roll Woman, um, June Millington and her partner Ann Hackler have this amazing rock camp for women and girls in Goshen, Massachusetts. And they teach women and girls not only how to play, not only how to write, they teach them how to run the board. They teach them how to get a record deal. They teach them the legal stuff, how to book your band, all these things that you would ordinarily learn by trial and error like I did, like (laughs) a lot of people did. But imagine learning that stuff. You're so much far ahead than you would have been 10, 20 years ago. And it's also changing the paradigm. You're not grooming a pop star, a flower to be in the front of the stage. What you're grooming is a music professional. That's huge. And somebody who can create, produce, um, and shape their own empire. Exactly. As opposed to being propelled by somebody else's. Exactly. And at the whim of other people. See, and that's where real power comes from. Meredith, as you know, is the author of Rock and Roll Women, The 50 Fiercest Rockers, and Aretha, The Queen of Soul, A Life in Photographs. And so, Meredith, talk to me about Rocksteady. Oh, my God. That's just my favorite Aretha song whenever (laughs) it's my go-to because it's so funky and it's so good. And all right, so this... The, the book I wrote, when you're going to take on a titan like that, someone who has been written about and really great biographies have been written about her, um, you have to kind of find a different way in. So I did four essays, one on Detroit, which is a, a fascinating story in itself, just the story of that American city. Um, one is on reinvention. Uh, one is on diva, what that means, where she got it from. And one is honors and awards because she got a lot of things and, and gave a lot that nobody knows about. Uh, or few know about. Um, but the reinvention, people say, oh, really? I never think of Aretha as reinventing herself. But she did, like, repeatedly throughout her career. And that's another thing. If you want to have a career, any career, you have to reinvent yourself at some point, especially now. Um, <laughs> even if you thought you would have your job forever, you may not. And you have to figure out a way to switch gears. Right, because the world changes and we change, too. Yeah. And, and so we all have to evolve in response. OK, so I want to dive into this because, you know, not only is... Aretha amazing for, you know, 100 million reasons. And we're going to talk about some of the less known reasons why and who she was as a woman and as a business person um, and as a philanthropist. And there are a lot of different dimensions to her that I think will help us understand her better, but also learn from her life for our own. Yeah, which is uh, her life is filled with incredible lessons. And again, she was a very she was very shy. She was uh, very reserved. She rarely gave interviews. She did not like to give interviews. In 1968, uh, Time magazine put her on the cover and she was very upset by the content of the article. And she got very shy, uh, media shy. What was it about the article she didn't like? Uh, there were a lot of things about her. Well, her dad was C.L. Franklin. He was a very famous preacher. And there were things about him, you know, he was, I guess you could call it prosperity gospel that she grew up in. And there was a sense, uh, part of aspiration, um, that your your preacher should wear a diamond pin and a fancy suit and drive a great car and live in the best house in town. Um, because it, it was aspirational. So congregants of, of uh, these churches um, during Jim Crow... It was very important. Church life was very important uh, in in this way. And they wanted to look up to their preacher. And there were other things, too. Um, all kinds of stories about C.L. Franklin. Some of that made its way into the article. Some of it was about her. 
Uh, and you can, I can relate to this. I don't know about you, but she liked to mope around in slippers and eat mac and cheese <laughs> and cook in her house. Okay. There was nothing she loved more than cooking and just hanging out at her house. I mean, and she was... You know, she was moody and she was inclined to sometimes just stay there for long periods of time. But she never isolated herself. She was always listening to music. At any era in her career, she knew who the famous singers were, what the hit songs were. She was always listening for herself. Even at the end of her career, she heard Adele sing Rollin' in the Deep. And she's like, that's a song for me. She records it. She wins her final Grammy, her 18th Grammy. Uh, and two Lifetime Achievement Awards makes it 20. But still, from <laughs> from beginning, the first time she heard Dionne Warwick sing Walk On By, she's like, that song's mine. All the way up to 2014 when she hears Adele. It, throughout her career, she's always tuned in, even if she's at home in her slippers cooking ribs for her family. Right. And part of this isn't just that she was tuned in. It's that her if musicianship, part of musicianship is your instrument and how you use it, but it's also your ears and what you hear and how you understand it. Both of those were extraordinary in her, correct? Oh, oh unparalleled. She had perfect pitch from the time. I mean, there's the very famous Smokey Robinson story uh, where he made friends with her brother on the playground. They would go over to the Franklin's house, which was the nicest house in the neighborhood. And he hears this incredible piano playing and singing. And it's Aretha. And she's like four. So she was a, literally a wonderkind. Yeah, and, she was a piano prodigy, right? Yeah. And and singing. She could hear a song one time and sing it perfectly, which suited her well throughout her life, including the time she stepped up and filled in for Pavarotti and sang Ness and Dorma. It perfectly brought the house down um, with 20 minutes of practice. Because she was that her ability to hear and remember was that extraordinary. She didn't read music, though. She no. couldn't sight read. Right. Not a, a little bit, but not hardly anything. But she wasn't just a performer. She arranged things. She wrote things. Isn't Rocksteady hers? Uh, I'm not sure if she wrote that. She didn't write a lot, but she okay. did arrange music. Okay. And she did not get credit for arranging music until 1972. She goes to Watts. All roads lead back to Watts <laughs> and Detroit. Um, but Watts, California, and she goes to this, this church and records Amazing Grace, which finally uh, it got a theatrical release. There's a documentary. It's it, amazing. It is, right? It's bringing a tear to your eyes. Sidney Pollock directed it. She, Because she was a, a perfectionist, she didn't want it out there. So she sued for decades to keep it from being released. Um, because I guess the music didn't quite sync up with the images. Something went wrong and she, she didn't For people want who are unfamiliar with Amazing Grace, it's a phenomenally important album. Can you tell us why? Well, first of all, Aretha was really a singles artist, so she didn't have a, a lot of best-selling albums. But Amazing Grace is her best-selling album. It's a double gospel album. Uh, it, it sold, oh, it has sold over two million copies, which is more than any album. Singles, yeah, but albums, you don't really think of Aretha as an albums artist. But it's also important because it's the first time she uh, took the reins of production. She controlled the whole thing and she got a production credit. Now, if you go back to her um, her Atlantic years, which are her classic years, Respect, I Never Loved a Man, all those great songs that we associate with Aretha, um, uh, Natural Woman, she didn't get a credit for arranging, but really she sat and played piano and the musicians fell in around her. That's arranging a song. Right. So she did this work didn't get credit for it. Finally, she makes her own album, a gospel, a double gospel album, The Audacity, uh, and gets this credit. And who's in the audience? Um, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts on their way to finish Exile on Main Street at a studio in L.A. That's why Exile has all these gospel overtones, because they were in that pulpit. They're not in the pulpit, in the audience. Right. Listen, and you see them in the film. And in the film, it, it is while they are clearly recording the performance um, to make an album, and it's incredible because it's meant to be live and have the energy of the space. It does feel like a church service. Right. Like the, the, there's so much spirit there that comes across in this. More importantly, though, for what we're talking about with these women behind the music and the power that they have by doing this, she, by having that production credit, she could control its release. So it was not only that she produced that album, could shape what it was like musically, but she could also control whether or not that film was released. Right. Exactly. Even though uh, you, you'd think, why would you not want this to be out there? And great director, uh, great subject matter. It's the at, at that point, the most important thing to her spiritually, emotionally, all that. Um, there may have been other reasons. Nobody knows. She was very secretive. She did not confide in many and she liked to control her public image. 
She was uh, very smart about that. And part of it comes from, again, this prosperity gospel background. She saw the power that you can have over your your public persona. She saw the compartmentalization that's required to have a public face and a private face. She was brilliant. She absorbed all these lessons. She understood the concept of a brand 50 years before anybody else tossed the word about. Exactly. She was so smart. And she does not often get credit for being as brilliant as she was, uh, as great a natural musician as she was. And just hip. She was just she just knew what was happening. One of the things that seems really potent in this isn't just what she was able to produce and get released and, you know, get financial benefit from, but also what she could hold back because there are too many people that are exploited um, and don't have control of what's out there or their quality isn't protected. And that ability to edit what is out there under your name is part of having your own power and control over your own life. And she exerted it at a time when very few women artists could do that. Right. But she also occupied a space that very few male or female <laughs> artists occupied Ever. because of that voice. I mean, she was really unparalleled. So going back to her formative years, um, she wasn't just home in her slippers eating mac and cheese she was also part of that's just my fantasy i mean that's my (laughs) my happy place i happen to have seen a video of her cooking with martha stewart right isn't that great (laughs) it's great where she confessed like when she she likes to cook she She does it for her sweetheart which i really i love that she did that she cooked for writers i mean very rarely would she grant an interview but if she did she was all in she would have a writer come to her house in bloomfield hills right outside of detroit and she would Make food and they'd stay up all night. She loved to to do that. But her, aside from that kind of way that she was a real person, she also was in a deeply musical community because of the church. Talk to us a little bit about that and where her early performance opportunities came from. Her father was, uh, they went from um, Memphis, where she was born, uh, to Buffalo, New York, to Detroit. And at the time her father was this rising star, he was really brilliant, too. I mean, he was early on in uh, that he figured out if he could use radio to broadcast his sermons, then he could become this rising star in the Baptist church, all the, you know, the Baptist churches. Uh, And so then when he got to Detroit, he didn't have a radio show, but he meets this guy, Joe Batten, who called himself Joe Von Batten. He's in the book, too. And he's just one of like the, the... the cool cats of of this story, because he realizes he can put out records. This is a time when John Lee Hooker, the bluesman, has come to work for Ford Motor Company. And so Joe Von Bat, he put the Vaughn in his name just to sound more important. <laughs> I love it. He he records John Lee Hooker. He, he goes to C.L. Franklin and records him. And his sermons start to sell more than the famous songs of the day. And so everybody realizes they're onto something, because uh, all around the country, Especially in urban areas, people are clamoring for these sermons. The Eagle Stir at the Nest is the most famous one. You can hear it on YouTube. It's very moving. So when she gifted these recordings to the Pope, I don't know if you, most people know this, but when she, when the Pope came to Philadelphia, this was just a few years ago, and she sang, she presented the Pope with a gift, and it was all of her father's sermons recorded. That makes sense. I mean, what a nice gift. <laughs> And the Pope, this Pope likes to rock steady. I mean, we know that. Uh, so, yeah. So she, so this, this environment that she grew up in, it was, yes, it, it was the church, but it was like this also kind of freewheeling um, lifestyle. They were on the road a lot. When she was 12, she would go out and sing uh, to warm up the crowd for her dad. And so she started performing very young, even though she was incredibly shy. Her dad, like, kind of pushed her a little bit and wanted her to nurture this talent. Again, all it takes is one person to tell you you're good, right? Right. And then you see what happens from there. If you just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Meredith Oaks, author, musician, world traveler, um, and champion of women in music. If you'd like to call us and ask a question, you can reach us, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. 844-WHARTON. So one of the other things that you wrote about in the book that I found really fascinating was that in between this, so there was her develop, her early years as a kid coming up in the church, um, kind of on the road with her family in the church, this combination of being within that community and also learning to be a performer. And then another chapter where she's now singing standards. 
She's recording. She's in the studio. But music that none of us, all of us know these songs, but we think about them with other artists, Dinah Washington, Ella Fitzgerald. We don't think about Aretha in that context. Right. That that was her first record deal. So when she, don't forget, she grows up in Detroit, right? And Motown is this fledgling label. Barry Gordy wants her for the label. Um, Seal Franklin and Aretha say no. She's 18. They want Columbia because Columbia is Dinah Washington. Columbia is Count Basie. Columbia is the the prestige label in New it's York City. It's elegant. It's sophisticated. Yes, exactly. So they sign her and bring her to New York, give her dance lessons, teach her how to move. And more importantly, they put her in the studio with an incredible number of uh, band leaders and professional musicians. So here you have this woman who's all natural talent, and she goes into this, and the studio is where you learn. It's where you learn how to do this. And uh, from like Ray Bryant to just everyone, she's she's playing with all these musicians. And a lot of Aretha fans consider the seven or eight years she was on Columbia to be these like lost years. But really, it was very crucial. It was like her master's degree. Exactly. That's exactly right. So she learns all these things and she she develops this canon of standards and she learns how to be in the studio and takes that with her for the rest of her life. It's so powerful because it's a reminder. You know, we have kids here who are coming to Penn and coming to Wharton, my own daughter, her friends, and everybody's thinking, how do I get on the path for my career? And we tend to, and also then those of us who are at different stages of life worry, am I off the path? Am I on the path? Forgetting that each experience can give us something incredibly powerful, but you got to tune in and you got to accept it and take it and carry it forward. And it sounded like when she was in that studio, she wasn't just there singing. She was learning and was conscious about it while she was doing that. Is that fair to say? It's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. She was so smart. She absorbed all these important lessons from uh, the actual physical making of music to the finances. She's been quoted as saying, well, when you see people pay their taxes with your money once or twice you get smart i'm paraphrasing (laughs) but that's basically what she said right and so she she maintained this control over her life and career for the rest of her life and once again it wasn't about i'm in here so you can make me a star she went in there and was professional but also tuned into everything that was around her so she could learn observe create new normals by what she was seeing compared to the life she had lived before. Exactly. And that she was not going to be this tragedy um, like Dinah Washington or like any of these women who came before her who were alcoholics or uh, fell prey to other things. I mean, she had some bad relationships. She had Who doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> she had two kids by the time she was 14 and then two more, um, I think, by her early 20s. But still, she she really she's someone who really learned. And that's something that you can take with you is to to uh, absorb the lessons of your surroundings, even if you're miserable and you think this sucks this is the worst time of my life, worst part of my career. <laughs> uh, you you got to learn something. And it's true with people, too. You learn from people and then you take that forward. Look, without going into details, there was a stage <laughs> in my career where I came home every day and cried. It was so hard. <laughs> I'm sorry. When, I'm laughing. <laughs> when I got my merit raise there. I was so freaking proud because. I had really earned it. And then the things that I learned on that job, I apply, I applied every single day since. And it wasn't just the hardship learnings. I was exposed to things. I was educated. Skills were developed. But it's hard to grow like that. It's also hard to see when you're in it. And I think that's the the challenge is to try to step back and say, all right, what am I what am I learning here? What am I doing here? And how does this impact the future? And things are changing so fast. It's probably harder than ever to do that, but more important to do that. So one thing that we don't think about often now is getting paid in cash. But that apparently was a thing for Aretha. Oh, like shit. I'm on a first name basis with the queen. <laughs> but talk to me about why. Is that true? And if so, why? It's totally true. And uh, part of that was and the only other performer I've ever seen do this was Chuck Berry, who insisted on being paid in cash before he performed. He came to my university and they wouldn't do it. And he left. He went to Hojo's. <laughs> sat in the bar until finally someone came up with the cash and gave it to him. But um, as somebody who works in universities, I'm so glad I wasn't the person who had to figure out how to find enough cash to pay Chuck Berry. Can you imagine? Like, <laughs> kudos to whoever figured that out. I would imagine, like, every student uh, who who was part of the entertainment council or whoever. I had this like, weird feeling like everybody's tin can with coffee money was dumped out on a table. Like, exactly. how do you find that kind of money? Anyway, why why was she so insistent on cash? She would not be ripped off. 
And the music industry has a terrible history of ripping off artists, especially African-American artists. And she was not going to subject herself to that. And she didn't have to. And when you see Aretha always had a handbag on stage. Even at the Kennedy Center, her handbag was on stage. Yeah. I'm not saying it was stuffed full of cash, but it was just a <laughs> habit at that point. Every red carpet shot, there's a giant handbag. And it's because all she would get 25000 or however many dollars. It and, takes up some space. Yeah. So she had the bag with her all the time. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It really is amazing. So th- as she starts to move through her career... Um, and your book does – one of the things about the book that's so wonderful, it's got these gorgeous photographs that show her as she goes through each of these different stages and really emerging as um, the queen of soul, emerging as – she let her hair grow natural. She stopped shaving her eyebrows. She, it's like she looks like she's comfortable in her body and her skin. And she's starting to make the music that we all associate with her. And then she moved into a stage where there were all of these surprising collaborations. What were those about? How did she choose them? And what was motivating her? She was uh, she was always going to stay current. She wanted to work with young talent. She never isolated herself. This is something I've learned from my own mom and my grandma is to watch people get older and not lose touch with culture. It's very important. It's important in your career. It's important in your life just to stay, to feel you're connected to humanity. Read a lot. Listen a lot. Watch TV a lot. There's, and go outside of your comfort zone. Exactly. Uh, go find out what what it is that you don't understand. Just don't say, oh, I don't get, uh, I, I don't understand hip hop. <laughs> figure it out, you know? <laughs> in the internet. It's not hard to figure it out. Um, but whatever it is, you're right. Push yourself past your uh, whatever it is that is that surrounds you and, and uh, always stay current. So that's what she did. So you see her in the 90s collaborating with Jay-Z and Lauryn Hill and all these other artists and later on covering Adele and doing all this other stuff. But really, she did that throughout her career. I mean, the cameo in the Blues Brothers. She stole the show in a film that had not only James Brown, but Ray Charles and John Belushi. Yeah, really. That's some scene stealing. (laughs) So when she did that, you can look at it through two different lenses. Part of it, it's awesome to think about her remaining relevant by plugging into new artists and new musical forms um, and what that teaches her and the audience that it helps her get. But she, she wasn't short for audience. Another way of looking at it is that's powerful. Do we call it mentorship or sponsorship? Terms we use in business all the time where she's now letting those people attach themselves to her. And from what I've learned from you, she didn't do that casually. No, she definitely didn't. She was very choosy with who she worked with. And uh, you could see stretches of her career where she didn't put anything out. And she was she was taking her time to find the right thing. She also would say a lot of things to the press that weren't true. Oh, I'm opening a <laughs> club in Detroit. Oh, I'm... So in doing research for a book like this, you really have to sort through the stuff that sh- that was said but and written, but never happened. <laughs> I so... wonder if that was her just toying with the press to get them off her back. It might have been a little bit of that. And again, she was very uncomfortable being interviewed. She did not enjoy that. And it it might have just been what was in her head. Or maybe she did really intend to do these things and just never did. So do you think she had a strategy for the people that she was choosing or just that they were singularly interesting to her? Um, I I think probably the latter. I think she always listened to to new artists. There's a an interview. It's on. It's probably on YouTube, like everything. But it's with a, a journalist from Time Magazine, and he asks her about all these young artists, and she her reaction is priceless. I mean, he he says, you know, what do you think of Beyonce? What do you think of so and so? What do you think of Nicki Minaj? And she's like. I'm going to let that one go. Like she, just, <laughs> she knew who everyone was. And I thought that was great. And, and, you know, and she would use her words carefully. But the way she partnered, I think, spoke volumes Definitely. about her faith and respect in these people. And also in her ability to perceive talent. And that's something that goes through Rock and Roll Woman as well. You see with all these women, they have an ear and they can they can figure out who's good. They don't align themselves with someone unless it's a talented person who whose vision aligns with theirs. It's really important in business, too. Speaking of vision aligning, when I think of the tail end of Aretha's life, part of what was so remarkable was her moments with Obama and his presidency. And it seemed um, – talk to me about that stage of her life and her her use of her fame and what the things were that she was celebrating. 
you see that a lot with musicians who've been involved in, but especially for Aretha, because she, her dad, her whole family were so deeply enmeshed in the civil rights movement. I mean, Martin Luther King was in her living room all the time. And and uh, so this is something that had been part of her life forever and was so ingrained in her. So for her to be part of of Obama's um, like his inauguration, that right. was a singularly important moment. It was. And one of the things I love about the book, they the photo editor, Christopher Meesom, got the photos based on the text that I wrote. But the photos he chose show this this vast array of emotion. Aretha had a lot of emotion on stage, but off stage, she was very um, reticent. She she didn't like to express her feelings. And it came across as cool control. Exactly. And sometimes they called her diva because of and there's a whole chapter on what that means, where it comes from um, her diva mentors, Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward, like the two, the very austere versus the glamorous. Right. And those two are the I mean, you had the 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 one who was the American icon, Mahalia Jackson, who was so uh, so uh, so serious. And then you had Clara Ward, who had fur and jewels and was wild and would throw the fur. That's where she got the fur drop from was from her gospel mentors. So, uh, yeah, so, but the photographs, they show her range of emotion in a way that you don't often see. Uh, she's reflective. She's happy. She's like all these things that she really did her best to hide when she was off stage. So it seems like what you shared with us and what we've been able to learn from you is that Aretha was a full, complicated woman, but also um, a real role model for the rest of us and lots of things that we can apply throughout our careers about how we learn, how we have faith in ourselves, um, and how we spread the goodness once we've made it. Exactly. And how to, how to take these lessons uh, and, and use them. Don't be uh, hampered by something <laughs> that happened that's, that's bad or you, that you consider a setback. You know, use that. Watch what happens in the studio and then give other people a chance. Meredith, if people want to find out more about you, the book, Aretha, where can they go? MeredithOaks.com. That's a, the portal to all these things. I interviewed Diane Warren, the songwriter, a few weeks ago for the um, Association of Independent Music Publishers. That was amazing. Um, so whatever it's I do. It's a great interview, by the way. Oh, thank you. I didn't even know you could hear it. <laughs> I guess you can. Um, so, uh, yeah. So MeredithOaks.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah. So I'm okay. easy to find. <laughs> Well, Meredith, I always love it when you're on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's the fastest hour in the history of hours. I know. It just flies by. And thank you out there for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and follow me at Laura Zarrow. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 